Hi, I'm John, one of the High Rock pastors, and I have to say that being part of the High Rock community has been a fantastic privilege for me. I mean, as with anything, there have been ups and downs, but being a part of this church family has been a singular delight in my life. And I deeply hope that your experience will be every bit as rich. But have you ever been part of a group that was the exact opposite? Instead of being a singular delight, it was a singular disappointment? Maybe a singular disaster? Maybe you worked for a company that had a toxic culture. Perhaps there was an unchecked bro culture or disastrous egos that were allowed to run amok or cutthroat in-house competition. If so, I'm with you. I once worked at a Fortune 500 company where I had my official boss, but then I had a dotted line in the org chart to another boss. Interestingly enough, both bosses claimed to be Christian, but one was like an angel and the other was the devil. I can't say I was surprised when they found out that he was stealing from the company. Too bad they didn't do anything about the ways that he was robbing people of peace and happiness until he started robbing the company of actual cash. I have a close friend who worked at the uh, director level for a Silicon Valley giant. Most of you probably own or use some of their products. But in a short window of time, he came to realize that everyone at his level had either divorced or died. And finally, he knew it was time to leave. It was too high a price to pay. Maybe that's you. Being a part of a good team can be a delight, but a toxic team can infect every other area of your life. Beyond work, what about your friend group or your family? It can be wonderful to have the intimacy of close friends and family, but those who are closest to you can also hurt you the most deeply. Sometimes people just don't know how to love one another, or maybe closeness gives way to competition. Sometimes there are one or two big personalities who dominate, who set the agenda, and if you don't fall in line, you become the black sheep. Or there are the constant verbal jabs disguised as helpful advice. I wonder if that's the appeal of all those movies where a team of old friends comes together to become something of a family. There's the classic story of Danny Ocean assembling his 11 associates in Ocean's 11, or the original, you know, in the original or newer version. And then there's Ocean's 12 and 13. I, I won't be surprised if there's an Ocean's 27, and this is what ChatGPT thinks it will look like. Then there's the Fast and the Furious. I confess that I haven't seen more than just a few scenes, but judging by the endless memes, Vin Diesel uses the word family a lot. Maybe I'll binge watch them when Fast and Furious 50 comes out. My favorite example is a little bit old school, the Blues Brothers movie. In order to raise the money to save the orphanage, they have to get their blues band back together for one final concert. And as they track down each band member, they repeat the same line. We're putting the band back together. And that's the point. We're putting the band back together because we know them. They have all the skills. They know all the right music. It's not just that they have the right talents. They also have the right culture. Whether it's Ocean's Eleven or Fast and Furious, they can all do the work and they know how to work together. They've done it before and they can do it again. Our real life experience of toxic teams, broken friendships, and dysfunctional families makes us crave these possibilities. 
to put the band back together, to be a valued part of a chosen family. But what if there is no band to put back together? What if there is no pool of past relationships to pull from? What if the only hope is something new? In today's Bible passage, we see Jesus prayerfully selecting 12 people to be his closest disciples. Most of them don't know each other. They haven't worked together before, at least not the kind of work that Jesus is going to give them. Jesus isn't putting the band back together. He's starting fresh. So what do you do if you have all new people in a new team doing something they've never done before, something that no one has ever done before? It's time for some ground rules, right? But like any good coach, leader, or parent, Jesus doesn't try to teach them an exhaustive list of everything to do or not do. Instead, he lays out just a few solid principles that can guide them through all the challenges ahead. He's talking about values more than laws or rules, and that distinction is critical to understand. When someone draws a line in the sand and says, this far and no further, what's your first impulse? Doesn't something in you want to cross that line? Or maybe your first impulse is to walk right up to the line. It's like when you were a kid on a family road trip fighting with your siblings in the back seat. Mom, Dad, he's touching me. And your parents yell, nobody touch anybody. Don't cross that line. When you hear that, what's the first thing you do? I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Jesus knows us too well. So instead of giving the disciples a set of rules, Jesus lays down a path, really two paths, a path toward blessing and a path towards woe or sorrow. Blessings and sorrows, blessings and woes, with a clearly marked path towards each destination. I think what Jesus is doing is creating a new culture, a way of living and being and doing that defines a team, a family, a community. Of course, what Jesus is doing isn't taking place in a vacuum. This moment is overflowing with history. First, Jesus chooses 12 disciples to also be apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent out, someone with a special mission to do something new. But why 12? What's so important about that number? Up until that time, the people of God had been defined by their connection to Jacob, whose name became Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes that formed the nation. By choosing 12 apostles, Jesus seems to be creating a new people of God, a new family defined not by bloodlines, but by their spiritual connection to Jesus. But just in case anyone misses that clue, Jesus does a second thing that also echoes the past. These pairings of blessings and woes appear to be a callback to Deuteronomy, the final book of Moses. When the people were about to enter into the promised land for the first time, Moses said, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. That's the context, becoming the people of God. And then Moses gives instructions that when they enter the land, 
six of the 12 tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim to pronounce the blessings, and six of the tribes will stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce the curses or woes, as Luke calls them. So here is a modern picture of these two mountains separated by a valley with the historic city of Shechem in the middle. In essence, they are being given a choice, not a line in the sand, but a choice between two paths. Mount Gerizim represents the path to blessing. And on the other side, Mount Ebal represents the path to curses and woes. Fittingly, Mount Gerizim was fertile with trees and grass, while Mount Ebal was largely barren limestone. It's as if Jesus is recreating this historic moment in miniature fashion. The people of God, composed of 12 tribes, now becomes 12 apostles, and Jesus himself announces the two paths that we can take, the two mountains we can stand upon. Do we want to walk towards the mountain of blessing, or do we want to walk toward the mountain of sorrow and woe? Again, these are not rules or laws. They are values, uh, principles, signposts on a path that leads to an ultimate destination. A rule says, stop, do not move, do not cross that line. A value says, don't stop, keep moving forward. Where do you want to go? Blessing or sorrow? Know the signs. When I first became a believer, I was deeply moved by the hope of having a new family. My parents separated when I was just nine years old. I was the oldest of three boys, and I was told that I had to be the man of the family and help raise my younger brothers. Having my parents separate and divorce was terrible, but it was still better than having them stay together. A pot or pan or two was known to fly through the air in our house, and the police knew our address by heart. That's not the half of it, but I think you get the picture. I desperately wanted a family just maybe not my family. Maybe the fast and the furious is really calling my name. I think if I had been there when Jesus was putting together this new family, my heart would have been almost broken with hope. Yes, Jesus, I want to be a part of this new family. I want to know the path to this blessing as the people of God. Right now, we're in the second part of a series in which we're walking through the Gospel of Luke And right now, we're especially focusing on the kind of kingdom life into which Jesus is leading us. So let's pay attention to these signposts. Let's walk through each of the blessings and curses as Jesus lays them out. Let's learn the signs that can lead us to the home we've always wanted, but never had. And let's pair up the blessings right alongside the woes. First, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Wait, does this mean that poverty is virtue and wealth is sin? Is Jesus saying that we can't have nice things? Maybe, but I don't think so. Remember, Jesus is illustrating a path towards a destination, not a line in the sand that will always be tempted to cross. After all, if being poor is virtuous, then how poor is poor enough? And if being rich is sinful, then how much is too much? I want to know where that line is, and whatever that line is, I'm probably going to want to edge right up to the line. 
Instead, I think Jesus is shaping a culture, a way of being a team together, a family of God. Being poor or rich is a matter of generosity and taking care of one another's needs. It's a matter of being in solidarity with one another rather than tolerating a world in which there have to be winners and losers. Remember, when Jesus or when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, he started with the very same idea. He told the crowds, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. If a certain amount of wealth is good and a certain amount is bad, then that's simple. I can just shoot for that number and still not have to love anyone. Instead, if being poor means being generous enough to become poor in the act of taking care of others, that's not a line, that's a path. It's a culture of humility and generosity and solidarity. In other words, there's no inherent value in poverty. Instead, there is value in all of us making sure that no one is struggling and suffering alone. On the flip side is that if we use our wealth to just take care of our own comfort without regard to others, then we're actually walking away from being part of God's family. We're choosing the path to Mount Ebal, the mountain of sorrow. Again, these are values, signs, aspects of a culture that Jesus intends to define us as a team, a community, a family of God. It's a question that you need to ask yourself, a question that we need to ask one another. Is my wealth simply for my own comfort, or is my wealth a gift to be used to take care of and bless one another? Later on in Luke's gospel, we're told that several of Jesus' disciples were wealthy women who were supporting Jesus and the disciples. People like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Have you ever wondered how Jesus and his 12 apostles were able to walk around the country like unemployed vagrants for three years? Well, it seems that there were wealthy people like these women who were supporting Jesus. And maybe that points to a good self-test to see which path we're on with money. Consider this. Have you ever prayed about money? What was the reason? Were you in a tight financial spot? Was a lack of money causing stress in your relationships? Did you want to give your children a leg up on others by granting them better opportunities? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these desires. But praying about money for you and your family is very different than praying for more money so that you can be more generous to others, like the women who supported Jesus and the disciples. Or, you know, if you get a big raise or a big bonus or have a great year with your business, you're going to be excited. But why are you excited? Are you excited for all the toys and experiences that you can buy? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but ask yourself, are you equally excited about the opportunities that God is giving you to be even more generous, to partner with our generous God in blessing the world? This same culture of, gener of generosity is what marks the next part of blessing and woe. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. 
once again, we have to think a little more deeply than just simple hunger. Why will the well-fed well go hungry later? Because they overate while others had too little to eat. That's not the path to participation in God's family. The right path, the path to Mount Gerizim, the path to blessing, is marked by generosity and solidarity in taking care of one another's needs. I once led a summer uh, church retreat where we put this principle into practice in a fun exercise. At dinner time, we had a cookout with everyone's favorite foods, but no one was allowed to serve themselves. You couldn't even ask someone else to give to get you anything. All you could do is take care of the needs of others. You had to be silent about your own needs or desires. Everything went smoothly and people were serving one another and smiling and laughing. It was about a half hour in when someone finally turned to me and said, hey, have you had, have you had anything to eat? And I said, actually, no. And I began to wonder about Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He emptied himself of all his wealth in order to provide for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we're told that Jesus, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich in all the most important ways. Jesus himself walked the path that he intends for us to follow. And please, I don't mean to make myself a hero in this story. I put on like 30 pounds during the pandemic, and that weight did not come from taking care of the needs of others. I have a lot to learn and relearn about these values, this culture, this path of blessing that is core to being a part of God's family. To put it simply, Jesus is saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This same theme of delightful generosity permeates the next pairing of blessing and woe. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Are you willing to pay a price to bring joy to others? Is that the path you're on? Or are, are you on the path that looks away from the suffering of others because their pain might hinder your own happiness? Team Jesus, the family of God, is one where we, in solidarity, enter into the struggles and pain of others to lift one another up. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus isn't a cosmic killjoy. In fact, last Sunday, Pastor Dave talked about how the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, were the killjoys. Jesus had nothing against having some fun. Jesus' opponents challenged him, saying, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And if you remember, this exchange took place while Jesus was at a party thrown by Matthew with his tax collector buddies who wanted to meet Jesus. So whether it's money or food or happiness, it's not so much about how much you have. It's much more about how much you share with others. Do we trust Jesus when he says, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The fourth and final pairing of blessing and woe might be even more challenging and countercultural than all the rest. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, 
for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This path to Mount Gerizim, the path to blessing, it's a path marked by working for God's pleasure rather than the approval of others. In fact, you know you're in danger when no one has a bad word to say about you because of your dedication to Jesus. I remember when I first became a believer and I went to every one of my friends and family to share how much Jesus' love had impacted me. And at that time, my dad really didn't want to hear it. In his mind, his faith as a young man was something that had made him weak and taught him how to be less of a man and more of a doormat. The fact that I seemed to need Jesus so much in his mind meant that I was weak. That Christmas, he bought me a keychain that said in big, bold letters, God loves me. Don't get me wrong. The fact that God loves me and you is a deeply powerful, life-transforming truth. But in the form of this shiny, kitschy bangle, it was like a proclamation of pathetic weakness. I don't know how I kept my mouth shut and held my emotions in check in order to say, thank you. This wasn't the first time that someone thought less of me because of Jesus, and it wasn't the last, but it was the first time that it really stung because my own father thought so little of me. We started today by thinking about how we have been let down or hurt by teams and communities and friends and even our own families. Without Jesus, we just don't know which way is up. That's why these blessings and curses seem so upside down. Our world, our culture, our values are so anti-God, so twisted, so upside down that Jesus seems upside down until he turns us right side up. Love, trust, forgiveness, solidarity, generosity, these are not weaknesses. Being generous by giving away good things is not losing them, it's multiplying them. And Jesus isn't just giving us rules for how to live a saintly life. These are signposts on a path that leads to blessing, that leads to life. Through the power of Jesus and his spirit, this is a roadmap for how to live as a new family of God. These are God-given values that reorient and redeem our broken relationships, our twisted communities, and our dysfunctional families. In fact, that would be my encouragement as you read through this passage on your own or in your small groups this week. Ask yourselves, how well do Jesus' words describe the path that you are on? How well does it describe our community? Where do the signs point? Do I see my wealth and resources as gifts that can be poured out to bless others in the name of Jesus? Or are they just what I've earned, what I deserve? Am I more concerned with just my own happiness? Or am I willing to suffer along with others so that we can share joy together? I think of Pastor Megan's sermon and how she experienced the increasing distance of her friends when she gave birth to Brady with his disabilities. It's a common story among so many parents of children with disabilities. No one wants to enter into your challenges with you to weep now, as Jesus says. Instead, people keep a polite distance. Do we engage in solidarity with those who weep and weep alongside them? Jesus makes it clear that each, what each path looks like and where each one leads.
Jesus adds some final words to the fourth blessing and curse, words that we didn't cover yet. And I want to offer them now as a final reflection, a a hope for you if you want to say yes to Jesus. Jesus is not a killjoy. There is real cause for deep joy and celebration. When Jesus chose the 12, that was only a start. Whatever messed up teams and communities and families you might have experienced, Jesus is offering something to you. Just like the 12 children of Jacob became the 12 tribes, those 12 apostles became the foundation of a new family, a people of God, a team like no other. And Jesus says that you are invited. You just have to say yes. Are you ready to say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him? You can say yes to him right now, this very moment. If you are ready, just say yes to Jesus. Jesus' family values might seem foolish or upside down, and some people might say exactly that to you. But if you've tracked this far with me today, it's probably because what the world is offering isn't working. What's foolish is the way the world continues to do the same thing over and over, hoping for better results. It might seem foolish to follow the Jesus way, but it's the path that leads to life. So hear these words of Jesus as a final meditation and blessing. Speaking of the day when walking the path of Jesus leads to rejection by others, here's what Jesus says. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In the day you suffer criticism and rejection because of Jesus, in that very day, leap for joy, shout in celebration. Why? Because welcome to the family. Now you know you're on team Jesus. To paraphrase the missionary and martyr Jim Elliott, No one is foolish to give up what they cannot keep in exchange for what they cannot lose. Don't stop. Keep moving forward. Read the signposts along the way. Let's choose the path of blessing together.